Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. So we need a narrative to, we need all the pieces of the jigsaw that can allow us to make sense of how we're feeling so that the story we tell ourselves fits with the knowledge that we have and the story we tell ourselves is the person we become. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Why do families drive us mad? And can we ever aspire to create a family environment that is functional or ideal to help explore these questions on today's podcast i've got julia samuel mbe to help explain why there is no such thing as the perfect family and actually it's through pain and even productive fighting that we can have rich joyful and fulfilling family experiences that emotionally develop us julia samuel mbe is a leading british psychotherapist and author of the sunday times bestsellers this too shall pass and grief works and during the last 30 years she's worked first for the nhs and then in private practice she's founder and patron of child bereavement uk and a vice president of the british association for counseling and psychotherapy she features regularly in the national media and has presented the podcasts a living loss and grief works and also the app grief works as well it's fantastic today we discuss the concept of love as medicine and why food is particularly hardwired in our memories. We discuss a lovely analogy of us sitting around, well, not really analogy, it's a, a very common memory of people sitting around a kitchen table and why that's so ingrained in our memories. We also talk about the importance of emotional connection as a basic human need and the importance of self-compassion a skill i personally need to practice more of every day as i'm sure a lot of people do listening as well 
You can find the links to Julia's socials as well as the links to her wonderful book, Every Family Has a Story and the other bestsellers all on the doctorskitchen.com. We can also sign up to the free newsletter that I send every single week. Something to eat, read, listen to or watch is contained in that newsletter. It is a personally written one from myself and I also pose lots of questions as well as giving you the opportunity to feedback and even feature on the podcast. Actually, we're going to be doing something very soon which is going to enable people to give their own opinions tips and tricks on the podcast i'm super excited about that so make sure you check that out the links to all that are in the podcast caption and without further ado this is my conversation with julia samuel i really hope you enjoy it oh and i should also mention that today's episode does contain some salty language so if you do have any young children around you just might want to be aware Okay, Julia, we're going to get right into it. I've got so many questions. Uh, <laughs> Good. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because we're, we're on the pod. We we it's called obviously it's called the Doctor's Kitchen. My sort of bias is to, towards nutritional medicine, uh, exercise medicine, and I don't think we talk enough about emotional medicine and therapy in general. We've had some lovely guests in the past talk about connection. And I personally have experience of, of therapy um, from the perspective of my relationships, uh, my family, uh, and I definitely see um, the value in talking about it more. And you've done it very eloquently in your in your books and uh, the latest book that I want to get into. But perhaps we could can start I, can by... I, can I yeah. pop in there and say that love is strong medicine? I mean, yeah. it is the most powerful medicine. If you meet someone who is um, feeling lovable and loving, they look so healthy and well. And the way they embrace themselves and the world is entirely different Mm. to someone who kind of doesn't feel that they're lovable and loved. Yeah. um, Where they kind of feel narrow and brittle and limited and so it, love is an amazingly powerful medicine and uh, well that's it yeah yeah no absolutely and you you know there, there's literal uh physical evidence of this as well i mean the the one that pops to mind immediately is um elizabeth blackburn and i forget her co-author now of the book and her co-winner for the nobel prize uh in, in science when they looked at telomere length in uh, identical twins and looking at the markers of stress in their life and actually how that manifests in yes physical uh, appearances in terms of wrinkles also but also their inflammatory levels and their propensity towards lifestyle related illnesses so that we know that stress and love as an antidote to what we experience on a day-to-day basis is something that has a very, very powerful impact on on our physical well-being. Every thought that you have has a physiological component and every feeling that you have has a psychological kind of thinking component. So the two are two networks that completely interrelated and dance and influence and shape each other. Mm. Um, and so it is, you know, I love the work that you're doing. It's so important and all of them are connected. Yeah, absolutely. Would you, let, let, let's talk a bit about 
a bit about your background. I want to introduce you to the audience. I'm sure they already know a lot about, about your work. You know, you've done a, a few books now. You've been working in the industry for a few decades. But uh, t- tell us a bit of a three. <laughs> three yeah. t- tell, tell us a bit about um, a bit about your background, if you if you wouldn't mind. Like, you know, where did you grow up? So I grew up um, in London. I was one of five children. Two sets of twins. So I have a twin brother and twin sisters. So my mum had five children under the age of four. Wow. Um, and my father always said, you know, she always did overdo it, your mum. So, um, and I was brought up, which led me to be a therapist in the sense that I was brought up from, by parents who my father had fought in the First World War, a uh, Second World War. He, They were both children of survivors of the First World War. And they were very much of the kind of generation. And they had no choice of forget and move on, keep pushing forward, you know, everything's fine, put on a good show. Mm. And yet my mother had her sister, her brother, her mother and her father had all died by the time she was 25. And my father, similarly, his father and his brother had died. And they never talked about them. So there were these black and white photographs around the house that I didn't really know anything about these people who were my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. Mm. And it made me be more interested in what was going on below the surface um, than what people were saying, because that seemed to be the most powerful influence, you know, in our household. Um, And it fermented me as a therapist. Wow. So so you wanted to go into therapy on the basis of your own experiences with your family and how they would repress I guess the the feelings it was the it was the repression and also connection I mean Mm. I love being in relationship I feel like I know you already because I've listened to your podcast I'm a big fan but it's such a powerful rich kind of connection and so I mean I'm incredibly lucky I do a job that I absolutely love learning and getting to know people really very intimately Mm. Um, and being a twin, I think, influences that. You know, if you look at twins in the womb, they kind of suck each other's thumbs and their toes are kind of pressed against each other. So I think I'm always looking to move forward rather than back. Um, yeah, yeah, that's so lovely. <laughs> One of my really good friends, she's just uh, delivered twins and uh, we're getting lots of images. We, we went to see them at six weeks as well, they're six weeks old, and they're still in this cot and they're still like hugging onto each other as if they're still in the womb. It's, it's magical. Like I, I'm fascinated with twins. <laughs> it is fascinating. <laughs> really fascinating. I mean, because I had a twin brother and my parents were old fashioned, I was separated from him straight away. He had one bedroom, I had another with my sister and we were educated completely separately because that was the kind of traditional way of doing things. And so that I think that is also a loss, you know, that I mm. wasn't really um, with him that much. Yeah, yeah. And do, do, you, um, do you, what are your, like your earliest childhood memories? I'm not trying to turn this into a therapy session for you, but I'm, ju- I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as to your opinions on your, on your own childhood. So my memories are that we were a gang, the five of us, um, and so when we went anywhere, we were kind of an energy and a force. As you can imagine, five children under four and two sets of twins. People looked and nobody had twins then. Um, and so I felt like I was part of something that was powerful. 
But I also remember, you know, I hid a lot. So I hid in cupboards and went off and kind of um, did things on my own uh, a lot. So there was this, I think, two ends of a spectrum. One one where I I think I was a bit kind of quiet and a little bit scared maybe. And other times I was like part of a gang. But I was the little one always running to catch up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think I still am. I actually think I'm still... (laughs) I'm still running to catch up. It, it sounds so nice. It sounds like, you know, being part of a gang, almost like, uh, you know, um, an Ina Blyton uh, novel of like... Famous, you know, five. famous five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's literally what conjured up in my mind. Uh, when you there was that. wonderful. There were some wonderful aspects to it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And you mentioned this sort of, um, this culture of uh, stiff up a lip and, and put a good show on. I think now we're 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 recognizing um, the disadvantages of that perspective, uh, in that it can hide trauma that needs to be um, needs to be breathed, needs to be discussed, needs to be uh, sort of explored. Do you see any benefits of of that sort of that mentality at all? You know, in 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 the correct dose. I mean, the thing that I think is really important is that in our closest, most intimate relationships, that we feel free and able to talk about all of our worries, our concerns, our suffering, our, you know, our traumas. And so that we have, particularly in our family, that those are the places where we feel safe to be fully who we are with all our vulnerabilities, our furies, you know, that we can um, don't need to, to defend ourselves against. I think we do need defences for going out in the world, getting up and going to work every day. I think promiscuous honesty, where you kind of overshare with people who don't know you, can really do you harm. So mm. I think it's choosing the right people in the right place to be fully open. Mm. And I think sometimes, so there's lots of different type of trauma. So there's event trauma, which is like what's happening in Ukraine or Paddington Rail Crash or the Grenfell Tower. And then there are a lot of what I call little T traumas that where you, you know, I I spoke with someone the other day who had a moment of being bullied at school and that where she felt excluded, totally excluded and kind of laughed at. And that shaped her relationship with making friendships from when she was eight years old. So if you looked at it on the outside, that isn't a massive event trauma, but actually it was a little T trauma that influenced her. She doesn't have big close friends because she always Mm. felt she was unworthy. And so, and she hadn't talked about that for 40 years. If she could have talked earlier, you know, with her mum, with her, with her family, and even if a, in a teenager, she would have addressed that full self-belief and changed her outcome. Mm. So I, I, I think being able to talk about the things that happen to us that shape us is vital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, that definitely resonates with me because I think there is an expectation that you need to have a massive event in your history to explain some of your characteristics or how you react to things in your adult life Um, and it can be as um, seemingly small quote-unquote 
that that can have a, ma- a massive impact. I mean, certainly when I explore some of the things that I had going on when I was a child, I was very lucky to be in a loving household of my parents, you know, on the surface of it, I don't think I, I can identify anything particularly grand that would have happened, but dive a little bit deeper and you can see some of the signatures of, of what has shaped my personality. And one always will be able to. Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> You know, as I say very loudly in the book, the most loving families, there are no perfect families and mm. all families have their ways of coping with difficulty and they move us on the spectrum of functional and dysfunctional depending on what's happening and your internal pressures and your external pressures. But if you are in a secure, loving family like yours, you at least have the kind of core sense of being good enough that you can find ways of navigating them. Mm. And you can kind of see it in your face. (laughs) There's an openness, there's a basic trust that it looks like you have. Yeah. doesn't mean you don't suffer or have, you know, things, fault lines and things that you think are wrong. But it feels like you have a kind of basic sense of, I'm okay. I'm good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's, take, it's taken a bit of work, I think, for me. And I think it's um, a skill I'm always trying to, like, push further. And you know what? Like, long conversation... Uh, podcasting, sort of forgetting that there's a mic in in, in between us uh, or a, a computer screen in our case. Um, you know, it, I, I found it absolutely therapeutic. Like I, I've loved the journey I've been on over the last four or five years doing podcasting for fun. And now it's become part of almost like a weekly therapy that I do. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Because it's really intimate. Mm. And that's why people enjoy listening in, like hearing you and I speak like we were in the room, like we've met each other and known each other, but being very open. Mm. And also, I do think, you know, in my, in my last book, This Too Shall Pass, it was about our capacity to change and adapt. And so, as you said, it's taken a lot of work. And it will, if you're going to grow and thrive, there will all be always be new things that come and get you and kind of go, ooh, ah. Mm. Mm. And it's your capacity to face that, allow it to shake you up, feel the discomfort or the distress of it, and then allow it to kind of be integrated into you and how you're going to respond to it, how you're going to manage it. That then, then in the end is growth. If you mm. kind of block it and go, no, okay, I'm not going to do that because that's pushing too many buttons, you become kind of brittle and, and limited. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier about... Um... Uh, families and how we're all along this sort of spectrum I guess of of dysfunction and there's nothing there's no such thing as a a perfect family what why do families in particular drive us mad like what what (laughs) what is it about the fam? because there are things that like my my family members I'm not going to name names here but my immediate family members will do that just drive me up the wall but if it was someone else in my life who who is important as well i probably wouldn't react in the same brash way but because it's my family my immediate family it just yeah it 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 triggers me in in, in a way i can't control i think there's lots of reasons i think where we love most we hate most we're most invested in we make our deepest mistakes and also the body remembers the body holds the score. So mm. if a sibling or a parent does something, it ignites the five-year-old you 
that is responding that you have no actual conscious memory of and you revert back to the five-year-old Ruby who felt, you know, bullied or, I don't know, annoyed or whatever it was. And he comes rearing, (laughs) rearing up. And it takes quite a lot of adult you to go, hang on. What what is going on to kind of <laughs> slow down, take a breath, and not have a tantrum like a five year old? Yeah, I'm going to remember that. That is a really good point because you're right. The reaction can be of that of a child having a tantrum, and you kind of reckon you're like, "Where is this coming from? Like, this is not how I am. I'm a 37 year old man <laughs> in a position of responsibility, you know, and and I can react quite uncharacteristically. It's uh, but also it's the power, it's sight, sound, touch and smell. So uh-huh. it's it may be that they say something, but it's the tone of their voice. The You know, if your, your mum could look at you in a particular way, like my mum's my died, mm. but she could. You know, I was 58 and a grandmother and she could look at me with a particular kind of scorn or and I would literally shrivel and also want to kill her. Both. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to I have to do this sort of thing like I'm pressing my hand up to make a tea time out mm. okay take a breath no I'm 58 <laughs> and, and also your parents can be children my mum was a yeah. child in so many ways mm. you know and so then you can get sibling rivalry between parent and child or you as a parent can be rivalrous with your children so all mm. of those dynamics that are kind of wired in us play out you know it's incredibly um and it works faster than our brain than our prefrontal cortex can control Mm, yeah it's it's that reflex action we've dived into some of the family dynamics here but i just wanted to 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 take this a step back and talk about um your your experiences as a therapist and and your training because Am I right in thinking you used to work at St. Mary's? Was that where you, yeah. you started? 25 years I was at St. Mary's. Wow. Um, so I set up their um, post that they'd never had before of supporting families when a baby or a child died. Mm. Um, so I worked in maternity and paediatrics and supported the doctors, trained the doctors and set up the whole kind of service for bereaved parents and a memorial service and how we supported them and what happened to them um, during, um, you know, when the the baby or child had died so that they were better supported. And it was, you know, I'm I'm now on the uh, Imperial Ethic Committee. I will never leave St Mary's. You know, it was the mother and father and everything kind of to me as a professional. Mm. And just that building. I love belonging. I love my lanyard, you know. I lo- I've still kept it, my NHS landlord, that I could beep it and it would open doors. Yeah. But, but, and go to go to a shop and get 10% off Costa Coffee. <laughs> but it's that, I mean, I'm making it small, but it was that, it's that sense of belonging to something that is bigger and better than me. Yeah. And the doctors that would pass me in the corridor, the nurses. Mm. I mean, I was the walking dead person. So if anyone saw me they'd want to tell me about somebody who died or something that was bad but you know I I I had real connections with them and I still see them all I still have supper with some of the pediatricians and I still ring them when my grandchildren are real um in a panic um, <laughs> so it's a, a massively important part of me and and from there within a few years of working there I 
um, helped establish and launch Child Bereavement UK, which is the charity that supports families when their child dies and when children are grieving. Yeah, there's, there's so much I want to unpick there. Um, that really resonates with me being part of something big and the lanyard as well and like make, keeping my lanyard. So I, I went to Imperial, that was um, my med school. And so oh, I know wow. St. Mary's well. Uh, we had lectures there and there was I Roger taught there Bannister. in that lecture that Robert Fleming the Ro- lecture. Ro- Roger Bannister Roger theater. Bannister yeah. yeah brilliant yeah with his he's got like a there's like a mural of him on one side of the wall it's incredible and all these medical students you sort of eating their breakfast or <laughs> their heads done I'd make them come to the front the, the last thing in the world they wanted to talk about was babies and children dying yeah and then I would make them do a role play um, and that actually woke them up and then they were really brilliant, obviously. Yeah, yeah. No, I've got really fond memories there. I actually did a pediatrics rotation there as well. Um, I forget the uh, the lead consultant now, but uh, he'd been there for a few years. I'm sure you probably know him. Um, but uh, yeah, no. And, and part of uh, something that I'm going through at the moment I'm uh, starting my sabbatical um, from from clinical medicine because I want to wow. focus on, on my app and, and the nutritional medicine side of things and, and a few other projects that I've got. And it's it's wanting to still be part of that something that's bigger than me. So going to my, my local hospital, Chelsea Westminster, being part of the team, interacting with the nurses, admin, other doctors, other professionals, you know, th- that sort of day to day I'm I'm kind of craving and so every now and then I'll I'll pop in I'll just go for lunch with some of my old colleagues and stuff and it's it you're right it's it's wanting to be part of that that um that unit it's 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 like and a, that it's it, it's not just that it's bigger than you it's better than you like mm. you know I it's this system with incredible people saving people's lives you know, every single day they're going above and beyond to save people's lives. And I know there are errors and things, you know, that are wrong with the system. But in comparison, my life is literally just nothing. You know, it is completely meaningless. So it's connected to that. And these, you know, I, the doctors and the nurses and all the sort of team I work with are incredible people, just incredible um, human beings. Yeah. And funny with such dark humor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, we're, we're, we definitely do have dark humor. I think it's a coping mechanism. And uh, I think you're being hard on yourself. You've done a, you, you're doing a lot <laughs> through the books and all the educational and I've stuff got an app. Done, and all the things you've I done. I can talk and to you about my app, my GriefWorks oh, app. It's, oh, do it, please. I, I wasn't aware. It's an amazing app. It's, it was an app store of the day. It's had unbelievable reviews. It's a 28-day oh, course. Yeah of how to support yourself through grief, where I've done films. So you can, it's sort of 15 minutes every day, the course, and then there are like 60 tools, breathing, Mm -hmm. meditation, exercise. So there's a journal, there's prompts. So, you know, grief is 24-7. Therapists, if you can get them, Mm. um, are once a week. And so if you wake up at three in the morning with a pounding heart and, and kind of completely overwhelmed or whatever it is, you can go to my app and there's a tool that can calm you down. And then and there's also the course that takes you through the process of grief. Yeah. Um, so it's very holding and supportive. Um, and I've had unbelievable reviews. People, you know, somebody said yesterday, I saw one, he said, I've been struggling with my grief for three years. And after seven days on your app, I feel completely different. 
Isn't that isn't that amazing? Uh, it like honestly how, makes me cry. It's incredible, that isn't it? Because it, it, there are, I guess there are comparisons with when you put something out on Instagram or a video or a podcast, and someone listens to it, and you might have recorded that a year ago, and that it has so much of that incredible resonance. impact and resonance with that individual that you've had no interaction with whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? That I mean. I completely agree. And I, you know, there's so many schools of thought about kind of arguments against the virtual world. And in the same way as I think for ourselves, we need holistic medicine of what we eat, how much we move, what we put our attention to, who we spend our time with, what we're doing has an effect on our physical and mental health completely interconnectedly. I think there is an absolutely vital piece of um, the virtual world that can reach people in a way that we cannot reach them. Mm. You know, the knowledge that I've gained over 30 years now has been downloaded, I don't know, 25,000 times by people mm. who can use it. I could never have seen those people. Mm. And it's helping them and changing them and supporting them and they're using it with their families. So that has unbelievable value. And, you know, you and I talking now, This were, the thing about podcasts and different to kind of newspapers or kind of little clips on the radio is like you say people listen to them two years later Mm. um so it really has a massive um impact which i'm very grateful for i'm really excited to dive into grief works actually after this because um i i I, me creating my own app that launched only a couple of months ago i saw it's very good Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Well, it's very sort of, um, it's very stripped back at the moment. So we've got like a huge number of recipes and we've got lots of plans to add new features so we can help people eat consistently well every day and educate them in, in the in the process. Um, but I imagine the amount of love, care and attention that you would have put into your app in terms of creating that course and all the other tools as well to help people. Because one of the things that I think is quite limiting working in the NHS is that we're never going to have enough doctors. We're never going to have enough nurses. We're never going to have enough allied health Time and attention. No. Time and attention is always going down. And actually, if you track the growth of the population versus the per capita nurses and per capita doctors, we're actually increasing a, a lot higher than the growth of population, yet we're always in this perpetual sort of um, On position. On the back foot. Exactly. Well, we're always needing to more and more and more. And so digital device, digital solutions, I think, are something that we need to embrace more. And uh, Completely. I, I can imagine your app being certainly part of that. Part and, of pe- that um, and because solution. like with yours, you know, it feels weird, my face on it and my voice and, and all of that. So in some ways, that feels like me being a massive narcissist and egotist. <laughs> but it actually, for, which feels weird and horrible. But for the app, it means people feel like it's me mm. and they have a relation with me and my voice. And mm. so they feel supported personally and intimately and in an interconnected way. And then they trust it. And the mm. minute they can trust it, they can use it for their benefit to help them bear the pain of grief. And, um, you know, pain is the agent of change, allowing ourselves for this new reality of the person that's died to, for us to face it and come to terms with it. Yeah. I I love that, that term you used, pain as the agent of change. Um, I, I wonder as someone who's 
had to listen to and enjoy. I'm sure you get this question a lot. How do you cope with that level of exposure to other people's grief, pain, bereavement? You know, all, all these things that thankfully, I mean, we all have to experience it at some point, but it's not as part of our vocation. And I guess your perception on, on how you deal with it is going to be vastly different to to anyone else who's listening that who who isn't in in therapy um i wonder if you could talk us through your your process of how you deal with with creating some separation yet being so intimate as you are with with your clients so i mean it it changes me all the time and I don't think I can defend myself against my clients because I can only really work when I fully attune and open with them. And it has had, you know, profound effect on the preciousness of life and kind of living, knowing that I could die and other people could die means that I don't always, I do sometimes take life for granted and I feel enormously grateful. And, you know, every night I say thank you is to God, but it's not really a religious God. And I name all my children, that my in-laws, my children's partners and my grandchildren's name and my husband for being alive. And I just feel like that's part of my response of dealing with death every day. Like every day I say, thank God for Natasha, Emily, Sophie and um, Benjamin, in case he's listening, which he won't be. Um, and that I'm healthy. So I think there's that side of it where I really appreciate life. The other side of it is that I spend so much time hearing terrible stories that I can't not know that terrible things can happen in very simple ways. Mm. So, you know, with my grandchildren with grapes or crossing the road or being in the bath or carrying them downstairs or being on a bicycle, all of those things I've worked with people whose children have died doing simple life things and so I annoy my children because I'm always like (gasps) so it's in me because I just see the bad thing and that's wired you know I've got the amygdala going I literally chop grapes into tiny little kind of centimeters yeah so there's that side of it which is more negative um and then I do masses of physical stuff. So I kickbox, I cycle, I run, I do Pilates, I do yoga, I do meditation. And I do stuff that that makes me laugh. I see friends, I hug a lot. I only watch fun things on telly. My husband always wants to watch all these frightening things and I kind of go out. <laughs> or people send me these films about death and dying. It's like, no, no, please. <laughs> I want to watch Mamma Mia. Yeah. Happy endings, Ted Lasso, like stuff that is, you know, warming and has happy endings Yeah, to balance. So I do stuff to try and recalibrate the balance in me to keep me regulated so that I can be up and at them and available for my family and for my clients. I think yeah. sometimes, I don't know if it's true for you, that sometimes I think my work gets the best of me and I kind of bring, bring the dregs home. Yeah, and yeah. I really want to try and not do that. The, 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 there's so many things in that because um, so what, what, I worked in pediatrics for, for quite a while in accident emergency, and uh, we obviously see quite a few things from uh, things that are near misses to unfortunate accidents that are a lot more severe. And so whenever I see like my friends' kids 
like standing on a table and you know they're three or four years old i'm like please just please (laughs) or or that you know there's something on the floor and they're crawling around and you know they can fit in their mouth i'm like yeah "Yeah," like small little things that please just like you know and swimming the exactly. sea, and, pools. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, just all, all the time. So I totally resonate with that. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of like on high alert. And, and it's so funny you say that about TV programs because my partner is like obsessed with all those sort of murder documentaries and missing people and all that kind of stuff. And I, I can't, I can't watch that stuff. No I need to watch like something uplifting, like put a cookery program, put a Saturday yes. kitchen on. Like it's yes. like one of my favorite programs. They're yes. always having fun and laughing. That's what I need to surround myself with. <laughs> Completely. And that's where food comes in. I mean, one of the things I, you know, I was so excited today is that I see food and sitting around the kitchen table and being a family as one of the most significant touchstones to family life. Mm. and to memory so that our sense of smell is 10 times stronger than any other sense that we have and in and with with grief um you can smell your grandmother's chicken curry and she may have been dead 15 years and you are literally zapped back in time to your grandmother's kitchen table sitting there with her and feel the warmth of her love as she made the chicken curry, the memory of her laughing and what she said to you in that moment. Mm. And so it has this unbelievable power for memory, for love, safety and security within us. And having that sense of safety in yourself is the only way you're then available to connect and love others. And as we know that love and connection is the most important thing in our lives that when we feel loved and connected to others that is equals the quality of our lives and our outcome and actually mm. our health our longevity um, our well-being and our success so I mean it's an incredibly vital part of our um, mental and family health absolutely I, I think that that's really going to resonate well with the audience um, because it's so innate, it's so natural to think about those experiences and imbue those memories with the richness of the smells. And and everyone thinks like, you know, their mum's or their grandmother's dish is like the best dish ever. And it's because it's tied to some of, the, of those different memories with the hard wiring of our brain. So... Yeah, that, that, I mean, as you were describing that, I was thinking of all the all the memories that I have of my like kitchen table and and all the different foods that we would experience and and stuff like that. So that's yeah, it's uh, that that really does uh, that really does get me. And it, and so one of the things I talk about it with grief, and I know I should be promoting my other book. Every family has a story, but it is totally connected because it's how we inherit love and loss, is that it isn't by forgetting the people that's died, it's by remembering them. Mm. And that food and particular dishes are touchstones to memory. Mm. And so that we we want to kind of be um, active to make dishes that remind us of particular important people in our lives yeah. at particular significant times or on at ordinary times. Yeah. And that it keeps them alive and available in us to support us, even though they've died. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
before we move on to families, I know we're, 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 we're spending a bit of time on, on grief here, but I think it's very important. We, we don't really talk about it uh, as much as we should. Um, when uh, the first wave hit and I was working in A&E, we, we got redeployed to different various areas of, of the hospital. So I'm, I'm fully trained as a GP, but I also um, have experience in acute medicine and ITU from my uh, time in Australia um, uh, about six years ago now. And um, we, uh, in our hospital, put together a family relations team, FRT team. And it was of senior doctors, anesthetists, cardiologists, uh, even some dermatologists, I think, actually consultant dermatologists that came. And uh, we would sit in this room and we would do uh, phone calls updating the families of people who are in ITU, the families of, of the, the patients and stuff. Because if everyone remembers, you know, you couldn't, go. Had you no couldn't go in and we had no way of updating them. You know, technology in the NHS is pretty sparse as it, as it stands. Um, and we had some unfortunate incidents where they would call up to the ITU and then they would be given erroneous information from one of the junior doctors. So it was all a thing. So every day was preparing families for pretty bad, bad news, news. You know, it was reminding them of the of the likelihood of of uh, bereavement, death. Uh, of death yeah. and everything else. That weighed really, really heavily on the whole team. And we actually had our own therapist that would come in once a week and actually, yes. Uh, I did it. I did it twice a week for St. Mary's. Lunchtime. Brilliant. Fantastic. Tell us a bit about your experience of that, because you know how how much of a, of a burden that was for not just the family, but also the, the staff themselves. So I don't want to break confidentiality. So sure. I can, I'll just tell you kind of generalised things. So mm. um, a paediatric team was converted to an intensive care unit team like, like you were. And I um, would do virtual Zoom lunchtime calls twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, one till two. And everybody in the team could come and they'd bring their lunch and um, and just check in. So I'd get people to check in. I'd say what they were having difficulty with. And I would give them basic kind of tools of how to kind of de-stress themselves. I call mm -hmm. it uh, um, how you can, um, I can't even think of the word I even use now, um, <laughs> stress busters, basically. Uh -huh. And it's giving them breathing exercises, mechanisms of supporting themselves, ways of communicating to their families. So the, the, the pressures were immense because it... Their families, the, the transition between work and home was really difficult. Mm. Um, and then the work was incredibly difficult when people were dying and, and having to communicate to the families, as, as you've said. And so it was finding ways of helping them regulate this, their systems. And I think one of the big things often with medical staff is not to conflate the feeling of failing with the fact of failing. Mm. So that when somebody dies, you kind of feel as a doctor that you have failed, that you haven't done what you were set on this earth to do and trained to do. And you need to kind of recognize that with despite all the, the technology and medicine that we have, there are things that you have no power over and that this isn't in your gift. There's limits of what you have agency to change. Um, and so to support yourself, to know that you did the best you could and the person died and to separate the feeling and the fact um, yeah. very clearly. And but but also that there has to be a I gave them a kind of 10 minute 
set of tools that they could do when they left the hospital so that they could um, sort of de-stress and calm themselves down as they as they went home and, and the same coming back. Mm. Um, and there were some beautiful acts of love from staff of people bringing in instruments and playing music. You know, they were unbelievably loving and went above and beyond um, what anyone would expect a member of staff to do. And, and um, a lot of them felt, and I think you probably did too, that they were kind of grateful that they were able to make a difference and do something uh, concrete while the rest of the world felt completely out of control yeah. and powerless. Yeah. And so there was this real energy of like, we can do this. We, you know, as a team, we are going to do this. Mm. And it was the the power of the team helping and supporting each other that kept them together. And some of that is humour, some of that is kindness, some of that, and all of it is based on trust and goodwill. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was an amazing thing to be part of. I did it for the three lockdowns. Mm. Um, and it was terrible. It was, yeah. you know, I have never seen more suffering in my life than I have in the last two years. And I have seen a lot of suffering. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's strange, isn't it? Because um, we were talking about this within the team uh, during the first lockdown. And whilst everyone was sheltering and uh, staying indoors as they as they were told to do so, we were going out and there was definitely that sense of camaraderie. There was definitely a sense of belonging. But sometimes that caused a bit of conflict at home because yeah. it's almost as if the people going to hospitals and doing the key working roles had a, a greater sort of uh, sense purpose. of purpose. Exactly. Then our, our partners are at home. And, and actually, I mean, that, that was a source of conflict some uh, in, in my household actually with my partner for a little while I mean we've, we've since moved through that but it, it it took a while for me actually to recognize that that, that was an issue I mean there, there was us being clapped for every Thursday uh whereas you know people at home okay well where's their clapping what what you know are they and everyone was doing their best yeah mm, absolutely I think there is a and I think that whole um kind of energy of going out, A, putting yourself in the way of danger because you were in the pandemic and, and in the infection so that those left at home were worried about that and frightened for you. And if people are frightened for you, not they don't necessarily love you more. They like want to punch your lights out for making them scared. <laughs> but also, although you were working incredibly hard and it was exhausting, there is a kind of sense of, of the greater good doing the dishes, keeping the children homeschooling, doing the washing, all of that kind of invisible labour that gets absolutely no acknowledgement, mm. acknowledgement is also unbelievably hard work, but it is boring as well. Mm. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. it's it, there, there can be a real clash of that. You think you're a bloody God, you know, and, and let me do all the kind of debris. Thanks. Yeah. And and for successful relationships, you want equal relationships. It really matters that they're equal, that you feel equal as human beings, equal how you are kind of professionally and personally. And if you feel like you're married to someone who's like this super god that everyone's clapping for, you literally hate them. You don't love them more. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a very good, a really good point, and de- definitely resonates with my experience. I, I, I love some of the tips that you gave earlier um, in terms of uh, practicing thanks and gratitude. That's definitely something that I was doing, uh, and I still do, and I, I have done for a little while actually. Um, the physical sort of unblocking of those emotional stresses. So the idea of you kickboxing is brilliant. I, I, I love the fact that you kickbox is awesome. I do like hit training and various different types so of I, movement yeah. to sort of, yeah, to-, to It's circuit to breakers. Because yeah, Because the absolutely. cortisol sends your system into fight, flight or freeze, which is mm. the kind of fire alarm in your brain. And if you've flown by kickboxing or 12-minute app or whatever it is, HRT, you drop your levels of cortisol and you increase your levels of dopamine and oxytocin. So then you're available to connect. Mm. And what's so difficult about not having a circuit breaker is that when you don't do that, you increase your levels of stress. Mm. And so then you are really frightened or really furious, probably both, but you're completely disconnected from yourself and the people that you need most. And so it just feeds on itself. And yeah. so using these mini circuit breakers is vital to keep you regulated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that note, let's um, let's talk about families. I, I love books that are uh, narrated through the lens of stories. Uh, and your book is a collection of stories, all anonymized, obviously, for con- confidentiality. But I think within all those different stories, even the ones that didn't... Uh, I, I didn't immediately relate to within the stories that I, I read. I was like, ah, there's something there uh, that, I, that that just clicks with me. Uh, and it was the way it's written, the way, you know, the, the story unfolds. So I wanted to ask about um, if there was a common thread through all those stories that you, that you can identify um, that we can all learn from. I think it is. I think it's two things. I think one is that um, love is the underpinning foundation of ourselves as human beings and as the core of our relationships in our families. But loving is not a soft skill. Loving is hard. Mm. So loving in action, loving by stepping back, loving by staying quiet, loving by moving forwards, loving by letting go, loving by holding on. All of that is unbelievably complicated Mm. and requires a lot of skills and self-awareness and capacity to endure the things when you want to punch and you step back and take a breath. And so that, that is the kind of key of secure families. And that it's the quality of the intention of that loving and the quality of the communication between the family members through the generations that will, I think, give us the kind of resource of a family as the bedrock of our lives. And one of the key elements I really wanted to show in the book is the importance of multi-generations and the influence of multi-generations so that in some senses, I think grandparents, maybe in Asian cultures, grandparents have more of a recognition, but certainly in this Western culture, they're kind mm. of like the old bods who are a bit of a pain or can be a babysitter. Whereas I think 
what I kind of saw from these families that I worked with, and they were all real families. A few of them were composites, but most of them were people who I anonymized, who were actually the, the people I worked with. The power to influence your adult children as a grandparent and to be the resource of safety or fun or a kind of freedom for grandchildren because it isn't the same. You know, parenting is much harder work and much more tricky. Mm. Grandparent, you're liberated in many ways. But also the, the the other big part of my message is that so much gets passed down through the generations. And I'm wanting to say to you, to people listening, kind of when you're thinking about, am I normal or am I okay? What's wrong with me? It probably didn't start with you. Like look up and find out and discover the untold stories, the untold secrets, the shame, the trauma that has been passed down psychologically, epigenetically and behaviourally, but you don't have a narrative Mm. to begin to make sense of it. And when we don't have a story, our emotions go to kind of frightening, limitless places of fear. So we need a narrative to, we need all the pieces of the jigsaw that can allow us to make sense of how we're feeling so that the story we tell ourselves fits with the knowledge that we have And the story we tell ourselves is the person we become. Let's double click on that for a second, because I think if anyone's listening to this and perhaps they have an open family or maybe a more closed family, what are some tips that you have to open up that discussion, to dive into that narrative of why a parent or a a person feels the way they do like how do they actually start having those conversations with those different generations within their family if they're able to so i think you know everybody listening they know their family best so with that in mind about who they are and what they're like one of the ways that i think is really helpful to communicate within a family is by being outside and walking and talking So being alongside each other, being in nature, having the space of nature where you can have silences while you're looking at the ground. The rhythm of your movement together is very kind of calming. And actually, as you're outside, you it generates thoughts and feelings that are freeing. And I would suggest that the person starts with themselves, because the minute I'm asked a kind of how are you feeling question, it's like, fuck off. No, I'm not going to give you my most kind of hidden hurting self (laughs) fuck off (laughs) and I'm a therapist (laughs) (laughs) so I think you have to start with you know I've been thinking I've been wondering I've been looking at I've been listening and what I know is this and what I'm curious about is that what I'd love to know more of is Mm. this Mm. So start in a very kind of open, generalised way. Mum, I'd love to know about your childhood. Dad, tell me about your dad. Like, what was his experience in the war? What do you know? What don't you know? But in a kind of very unthreatening environment where you're just curious and you want to know stories and that you can talk to aunts and uncles and best friends And look at, so one of the things that I did for the book was that I did a genogram for every family so that you could see the dates of birth and see who died and then kind of work out, well, my goodness, he was only nine 
when his dad died. But also you can do a genogram where you look at patterns, where you see who got divorced, who was an alcoholic, who had mental illness. And you can begin to chart from both sides of your family what is going on and then look with curiosity, like, what do I know about that? You know, what do I know about this? I mean, I, doing the book, you know, both my parents have died. And there was so so many questions that came up that I never, ever, ever asked them. Yeah. Um, because they had put on a kind of uh, steel girder around them, don't ask me. But actually, you know, even as a therapist, I could have been, I could have easily done it in a way that would have gone behind the steel girder. Yeah, yeah. Does that lead to, do, do, you, do you think about that with regret sometimes or like you... So I do. I have regret. And I, and so people who are younger than me, whose parents are still alive, what I suggested, you know, don't have regrets and record some of the conversations. I mean, I did record my mum's voice, um, which I've still got on my phone. And I listen to now and again. She was slightly bonkers some of the time. But anyway, she, it was. it's wonderful to have it. But I spoke to my godmother, who's her best friend. I spoke to a number of people who really know them uh-huh. um, and didn't get much, truth be told. But at least I did ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, None that's... of them talked about things that matter. They all talked about stuff that doesn't matter. They yeah. literally never told each other what was really going on. Yeah. They talked about what they were doing, what their children were doing, who's got married. <laughs> they talked about all the nothingness of life and none of the substance of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love that tip about demonstrating vulnerability yourself before prying and asking questions about their childhood and their relationships and, and how they grew themselves. I think that's a really effective uh, tool for uh, communication. And y- you also talk about this concept of um, uh, fighting productively uh, as, as almost like, you know, expression of, of love. I mean, if you, like I said, right at the start of this conversation, my family are probably the, the ones that rub me up the most the wrong way. Uh, and I think finding a method for fighting productively would be very useful for not just me, but a lot of, of other people. How, how do you create an environment where you can actually have productive, heated discussions? I mean, you've said it in that where you love most, you fight most because it, mm. you care most. And also you see each other most and you push each other's buttons because you know each other so well. Mm. Um, so I think the first thing is to acknowledge you will always have fights. It's not like a good relationship doesn't have fights. It's that you will have rupture, you will have these fights, and it might be on the surface about the bins, but normally it's about other stuff. It's often about love and attention, and it can be played out in all sorts of ways or power. So I did these 12 touchstones for the well-being of family, and so the, the one about fighting productively is that it's how you fight, rupture, and that you have to repair afterwards. And it's that connection of repair. So how you fight is not using words as weapons of mass destruction and bringing up all yesterdays and last years and 15 years ago fights and not saying things like you always and you, you know, horrible words. Mm. But again, starting with yourself, I felt when you didn't put the bins out that I was da-di-da. So that you own your feeling, you say what the thing is that's wrong and you're kind of open to what they say. And it may get out of control and you may have a kind of child fight, 
because you can do your best and you can still lose it. But then once the heat, your you know, once your body's in fight or flight, you can't do anything about that. You're in, your brain is on attack or you feel hurt. So you can't be your kind of third eye, more responsive, kinder self at that point. So then you have to kind of let the heat calm Mm. and then have a kind of uh, uh, method in your family that you come back and you talk about what was really going on. Mm. What were you really fighting about? What was it that you were really telling me? What was it that I really needed to tell you? What can we learn from this? How are you feeling now? Is there still stuff that I said that's hurting you that will come up again the next time we have a fight? Let's look at how we can feel closer and learn more about each other, given that this fight told us that there's something between us that is that went wrong or not went wrong, but is 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 a clash Mm. and use the clash as a place of learning and knowing each other, knowing yourself. And often you feel closer. I mean, I hate fights. I'm really scared of anger. But really, the only person I can fight with is my husband Um, because he's taught me that he doesn't diminish me and scare me and frighten me. (laughs) And so we have quite good fights. And so that's where I got this from, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, That's that's, that's really insightful. I mean, yeah, a lot of that definitely um, I can relate to in terms of those productive fights because we, me and my, my partner, Rochelle, we uh we try and do a weekly check-in where we actually bring these things to the surface before they bubble over because I, I'm I'm like you I'm not very confrontational and I'll hold on to things yeah because I will feel to myself and I'll say to myself it's not worth it and I've learned to change that vernacular and say I'm not worth am I saying to myself I'm not worth that's it that's so good yeah and in in that case you know it's a it's the wrong way to talk to yourself about it so we, we start having those sort of uh conversations and you refer to this uh, i've heard you say the shitty committee uh in your brain that constantly talks to you and I, I i remember reading a book and thinking oh my god i do have my own shitty committee uh i i do have that sort of this collection critical of voice yeah. very critical voices yeah how do you how do you communicate with that shitty committee yourself like how how do you dampen down what that they're saying or what you're saying to yourself such that it doesn't ingrain in your personality and how you react on the surface to other people i mean the first point is when you've got oh my when you said to yourself oh my god i've got a shitty committee so it's the awareness because often this voice is grinding you down and you have you're so used to it it's so familiar and toxic and cruel that you actually it's just you it's just who i am So kind of maybe the first step is taking, you know, 10 seconds out and being aware of what is it that is circulating in your mind? What are the words that you're saying to yourself? And write them down. Mm -hmm. And as you write them down, you'll realise with kind of shock, oh, my goodness, I would never speak to anybody like that. Not someone I didn't even like. That it's often, you know, at such a level, and it, of course, there's a spectrum in all of these things. It could be just mild, but often it's quite harsh. And you can't, you know. So I think one of the, the powers of therapy is we can't change the past. We can't change what happened to us. We can change what we do with what happened to us. Mm. We can change our relationship 
with what happened to us and that we are wired to change. We have this incredible neuroplasticity, which is like our superpower. So when we give ourselves the time, the attention, the worth and the love to know that we are of value and we allow ourselves to focus on something, we can really change it. Mm. Um, And so the awareness, the writing it down, and then it's like the familiarity. So it's a bit like with mindfulness, like you log, oh, there I am. There I am saying to myself, you idiot. Or, I mean, the thing I often think with men when you're talking about not wanting a fight, this is a bit mean and very biased as a woman. But I think a lot of men are addicted to Sky Sports and they have tattooed on their forehead, all I want is a quiet life. (laughs) 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 And I think the Sky Sports could be taken to court for many divorces. But that thing of all I want is a quiet life. Beneath that is also saying I can't be fucked. Like, no, don't bring me your complaints and your misery and what you're pissed off about. Sort yourself out. Leave me alone. But that isn't how relationships work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I could definitely see that. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) My personal life, but yeah, no, definitely. Um. I uh, I wanted to give you this uh, this thought experiment um, as we close here, talking about um, families and in particular with the the, the concepts in your, in your book. If you were health czar for a day, and you had the power to instill practices in families up and down the UK, what things would you encourage people to do today? in a preventative manner to prevent fractures, to prevent fighting. I mean, it's it's inevitable that we are going to fight. It's inevitable that, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect ideal family. We're all dysfunctional in some way or another. But if there are things and practices that you could say to every single family in the UK today, what what would some of those be? I mean, obviously, that's a massive question. I could tell you 300 things. <laughs> I think at the core, maybe it is compassion. Uh self-compassion and compassion for others that you know what we care and mind most about we also hurt most and we're at our most vulnerable and so self-compassion by being turning to ourselves with warmth and kindness and turning to others with warmth and kindness enables us to kind of show up and take responsibility and deal with what's going on and I think it does mean that we, if we have self-compassion, then we, the the next steps of that mean that we look after ourselves. You know, we do some meditation, we may take some exercise, we may make sure as a family we sit around the kitchen table and eat together yeah. and listen and talk to each other. But I think if you don't have that as the foundation, it's very, very hard for the other steps that are, are very important to follow. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, as you eloquently state in your book, emotion is, emotional connection is a basic human need. And um, like we started this conversation, love is medicine. And I think if we can lean into that, um, we can all have healthier relationships with ourselves as well as with the people who are closest uh, to us. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And the book is wonderful, honestly, Julia. I've learned so much from it. Um, and I love your vulnerability in the book as well. I mean, you talked about 
the story with the same-sex uh, couple, for example, about how it wasn't your forte, you hadn't had a, as much experience with it. And I'm I'm really glad to see that you you actually wrote about your experiences there from a position of um, inquisition uh, as well. It was, yeah, it was that was that was one that definitely stood out to me. Well, thank you. I mean, I I've loved this conversation, and I hope people listening, even if they only take one thing, that they'll take something for themselves, and that that will support them in their lives and in their families. And I and I, you know, with the book, I wanted it to be about families, but it's relational. So mm. I wanted to show what I don't know and my biases. You know, we all have biases. Mm. And where I felt, you know, this awful excoriating shame, like, oh, I've got something wrong. And because that happens in our relationships and it happens in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's something I, I you know, being a general practitioner and someone who comes in with uh, a condition that you, you're not that fully aware of, sometimes you can have that um that feeling of of self-doubt and that you've almost let yourself down by not having all the perfect answers at, the, at your fingertips and i think it's just part of being human um so yeah absolutely i i totally agree with that but also your patients and mine will trust us because they'll read it in our face mm. that mm. we don't know and they smell a bullshit in a nanosecond so that how to keep the relationship alive and connected and kind of functional or, you know, attuned online is by saying, do you know, I really don't know about that. Mm. Or I need to go and talk to somebody about that. I need to go and find out more. I want to give you a proper answer and I don't have it right now. Mm. Absolutely. Julia, thank you so much. It's been wonderful you. chatting. You're you're so open. You're so lovely. I can't wait to do this again at some point in the future. I hope we do. Yeah, in person. I'll have to definitely cook for you. Will you cook for me? <laughs> if I was to cook for you, what would I what would you want? Oh, I, your... I I want you to cook what you love cooking. Because I think okay. I'd love it then. Okay, great, great. That's a deal. <laughs> thank you so much. I really loved it. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can check out all the links to Julia's socials as well as her wonderful book at thedoctorskitchen.com and also sign up for the newsletter and also download my app whilst you're there as well. You can get it if you've got an iPhone. Just check it out. It's on App Store and there is a 14-day free trial. So go check that out and I'll see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.